We've been in the book of 1 John for a few weeks now, um, written by, of course, John, who was a very young man when he was called to Christ, probably still a teenager, in fact. But at the point he's writing this letter, he is in his older years, in his 80s probably. And he's writing to a group of people in probably in Ephesus, where he uh, ministered for some years uh, in his later life. And he's writing to them because of some particular stuff that's going on in that church, particularly that uh, there are some false teachers and false prophets, and they are teaching strange things about who Jesus is and, and was. And because of that falsehood creeping into the church and the believers there, John is writing this letter, and he focuses on the truth, and he hammers the truth home again and again and again and again. And he talks about how the truth leads us to fellowship and how truth leads us to joy and how truth leads us to a righteous walk and how truth leads us to not living sinfully. He says, make no mistake, we still sin. The end of chapter 1 is very clear about that, that we still sin, but that when we do, we have an advocate. Last week, we spoke about how Jesus is the then in the if-then relationship, the statement of logic that John introduces in verse 1 of chapter 2, saying, if anyone sins, then we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus is the then. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's our advocate. He's our representative. He's our speaker on our behalf. He's the one who vouches for us. It's not the same as a defense attorney exactly, <clears throat> who tries to convince the judge that we're actually innocent, but rather it's somebody who says, yeah, he's guilty but the price he owes, I've already paid. And so I have him innocent by my sacrifice, Jesus can say, by my blood. All those songs we just sang, we all talk about that, how it's his righteousness. That's what he does as our advocate, because having been washed by his blood, now we are cleansed by his blood. And we're going to talk a lot about blood today, so hopefully it doesn't make you too squeamish. We're also going to talk about goats and marriage, not in the same context, and we're going to talk about the law and a whole bunch about who Christ is. So let's go back to where we are in the text, the, kind of the tail end of 1 John 2, verse 1, and into verse 2. It says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole world. Lord, we thank you for your words this morning. We pray that they would be deeply impactful to us as we are thinking about them and as your Holy Spirit is moving in us to understand them better and to make use of them in our lives, Lord. Help us to drop our preconceived notions about things and to listen to your word, God, and that you would speak and not me. And I pray that throughout the week, Lord, as we are recollecting this and ruminating on it, Father, that you would continue to bring us to a closer relationship with you and to a deeper joy and fellowship. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your words this morning. Amen. Our advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And we talked last week about the role of an advocate, what he has done and does for us, but we didn't really dive into too much about how or why he's able to do that work. And that's what's indicated by the title at the end of verse 1 here, that he is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Our advocate is not just some schmuck or a a rookie public defender. This is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Not Jesus Christ, the pretty good guy, or Jesus Christ, the, the prophet of God, or Jesus Christ, the projection of God as the, 
uh, false teachers in Ephesus would have had you think that he wasn't really a, a corporal being at all. But this is not Jesus Christ, the guy who was pretty good at hiding his sins, so that he appeared righteous. <clears throat> this is Jesus Christ, the righteous. What does it mean to be righteous? And as I was going through Scripture thinking about this and looking at it, I found there, there really are kind of two senses of the word that I would use. The first one I would categorize as evident righteousness, and the other being eternal righteousness. So evident righteousness and eternal righteousness. The word righteousness gets used a lot in the Old Testament especially, and usually to describe somebody who is good at following the law. They're obedient. You might even look at um, evident righteousness as being defined by a lack of injustice. So this would be like the commands in Leviticus 19, where it says, you shall do no injustice in judgment, in measurement of length, weight, or volume. You shall have honest scales, honest weights, an honest ephah, and an honest hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It's important to be honest, to be upright, not to have injustice. Upright is how Job is described in the opening of that book. God calls him blameless and upright. Or you can see it in Deuteronomy 25, where it says that if there is a dispute between men and they come to court, that the judges may judge them, and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. And it goes on to describe the the punishment that the wicked man deserves. But the point there is that one of them is wicked and the other is righteous. But it's not necessarily because that righteous man is holy and pure. It's because in this particular circumstance, he lacks injustice compared to the other man, the wicked one who is being unjust. And so this kind of righteousness, the evident kind, it's what is seen, what's visible, but it can also be fleeting. In Genesis 6, God declares humanity wicked and plans to destroy them. But it says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And at the end of the chapter, in verse 22, and leading into chapter 7, it says, Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. So he was obedient. Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. God calls Noah righteous, partly because he did what God told him to do. Obedience is righteous. But this kind of righteousness is evident, you can see it, but it can also be fleeting. Noah's evident righteousness comes and it goes. And you see that in what happens after the flood, after they get off the ark in chapter 9 of Genesis, where it says in verse 20, And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Nothing wrong with that, or all of all would be in trouble. But uh, in verse 21, it says, Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. Something wrong with drinking wine. Psalm 104, 15 says, Wine makes the heart glad. Judges 9, 13 says that uh, wine cheers both God and men, but there are limits. When God is providing through Moses the instructions for the priests in Leviticus chapter 10, he tells Aaron and his priestly family that they're not to drink wine or strong drink when they come into the tent of meeting so that they won't die. They can't defile themselves in any way or inhibit themselves in any way. And Proverbs tells us in several places that one can be destructive. It's the misuse of the thing because of our sinfulness that, that corrupts. And wine in itself may not be bad, but getting drunk certainly is, partly because when you get drunk, you lose your inhibitions and you may end up like Noah, uncovered in his tent. And there are a lot of euphemisms you can make about that. Um, 
and I'm not going to elaborate on it too much, but suffice to say that none of them are good. So here you have Noah, who God himself called righteous back in chapter 7, getting drunk and exposing himself, or, or worse, in his tent. And that's the kind of evident righteousness, the the visible kind, the kind acquired by obedience or displays of righteousness. It's the kind maybe best summarized in Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is after the Israelites received the commandments. It says, And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Keep all the commandments in order to be righteous. But the problem is nobody can do that. This kind of evident, obedient righteousness is the kind Jesus is talking about in Luke 5 when he says, I have come not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. He's speaking to scribes and Pharisees who have accused him of violating the law and making himself unclean because of it. And Jesus doesn't pull punches. He says, it's not just your actions that make you clean or righteous. He's implying that they're sinners too. He says, you need cleaning. <clears throat> the kind of righteousness that you have is just the evident kind, the kind that others can see by taking the best seats in the temple and praying on the street corners and tearing your clothes and tithing a tenth of, the, tenth of their mint leaves. That's one of my favorite illustrations of the, the silliness of obedience to the law as a path to righteousness. To tithe a tenth of your herbs as if that will gain you salvation. They did that stuff so they would seem righteous, so they would have an evident righteousness. So that's, that's one sense of the word righteous, the evident or the displayed kind, the other being the eternal kind. And I would turn to Psalm 5 to see some of the difference there. In verse 12, it says, For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as with a shield. And this kind of sounds like the righteousness that we've been talking about. God's going to bless those who are righteous, who have evident righteousness that's witnessed in their bearing out and obeying the laws and the commandments given to them. Do good things and God rewards you. We can take that from this verse. But this verse is a good case study in not taking a verse without its context. So if you look back one verse in verse 11, you'll see that it says, but let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. And so you see that the righteous it's talking about in verse 12, they're these people, those who put their trust or their faith in God, those who love his name. This is not a psalm about people whose hearts are after doing the right thing in order to convince God to bless them. This is a psalm about people whose hearts are committed to the Lord and are then blessed with their obedience as a byproduct of their commitment and faith to God. And there is a righteousness in that that's different from the fleeting obedience to the law or our standing compared to others around us. Paul describes the difference in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, when he writes that it counts it, he counts it as gain to know Christ and to be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And he elaborates on that in Romans chapter 3. I'll read just a few verses out of there. These should be familiar verses to all of us. If they're not already, I would bookmark them. Verse 19 of Romans 3 says, 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see the difference between those two senses of the word righteous. <clears throat> you can see the difference in what they create, an, an evident righteousness versus justification. And you see the difference in where they come from. One comes from man and man's sight and judgment. The other one comes from God. Evident righteousness is what we can muster and manage and see on our own. <clears throat> and eternal righteousness is what God provides through faith in Him. And it only comes from Him. So why am I talking about all of this? Because our text back in 1 John 2 tells us that our advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And there is something about Jesus that, that makes him the one who is able to play that part, who can fill that role. <clears throat> part of his qualification for it is that he is the place and the only place where these two senses of righteousness meet each other, where you have evident righteousness, visible righteousness in the sight of men, an unblemished and perfectly obedient life, <clears throat> and an eternal righteousness from and of God. Deuteronomy 32, 4 says that he is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. <clears throat> Yet Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 and Ecclesiastes 7 and other places all tell us that there is nobody, there's no man who only does good, <clears throat> who perfectly obeys the law, who's without sin. And yet again, we have 2 Corinthians 5.21 writing about Jesus that says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Or take Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Or flip over to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 28. The law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. <clears throat> Pastors, too. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints the Son, who has been perfected forever. Jesus knew no sin. He lived a perfect life. He was righteous as only God could be and as man only wished that he could be. This is our advocate. This is who it's talking about. He's the only one who meets that criteria. <clears throat> but here's the thing, is that because God is without injustice, he has justice. And that justice is served. And given that the punishment for sin is death and that all men have sinned, we've covered this a few times recently, there must be a payment for all men. And Jesus has that covered too. So let's reread verse John 2, verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. <clears throat> now we've defined who he himself is. It's Jesus Christ, the righteous, the perfectly righteous, he is the propitiation for
for our sins. Now, that word is big and a little bit scary because it only shows up a handful of times in Scripture and pretty much never in your day-to-day life. Actually, if it shows up in your day-to-day conversations very much, I would love to hang out with you more. (laughs) I'm really curious about that. But it it really just means the satisfaction of a payment or, or debt. And there's a death debt for all of us. One of the things about Jesus that doesn't get talked about a lot is that he talked about judgment frequently. It's not a pleasant subject, but he wasn't coy about it. Just for one example, you can see John chapter 12, verse 48. It says, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. And in Ecclesiastes 12, it's even more clear. God will bring, this is verse 14 in Ecclesiastes 12, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So there's, there's judgment. There's payment due. There's a price. And Jesus, John writes in 1 John 2, is the propitiation, the, the satisfaction of that. That's why he had to be perfect. <clears throat> That's why it's so important that he was righteous in every sense of the word. Because his blood became the payment, the thing that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. This is what John says in verse 9 of chapter 1. Not temporarily, not just evidently, not just visually, not just perceptually, but totally cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And he could only do that because he was righteous, because he was perfect. Only that blood could do it, the blood that Peter said in, in, in 1 Peter's, the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That's the perfect lamb of God. <clears throat> and that's, that's at the heart of the gospel message. That's why I'm belaboring this point. It's why Paul puts it first when he summarizes the gospel. And if you ever need to summarize the gospel really quickly, go to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says in verse 3 there, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins. That's got to be up front. It would be reasonable to ask why it had to be that way. Why did his death have to look like that? Why did his blood have to be poured out? Why did he have to die in our place? It's extreme. I spent a lot of time thinking about the picture of Christ as our sacrifice. And of course, I went back to you know, Genesis 22 and Abraham and Isaac and that picture of obedience that's both sweet and sad and that foreshadows Christ. And it shows us how much a father loves his son It also shows us how much more we ought to love the righteousness of God. And then I went back to Leviticus, and I spent a lot of time in Leviticus. And the reason I spent a lot of time there is because of verses like Galatians 2, 16. It says, A man is not justified or or declared righteous by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. <clears throat> There's also those, those powerful and kind of frightful words in Exodus 36, right after God has given the second set of tablets of the law to Moses. And God says, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty visiting the iniquity of the father upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. 
God is both merciful and just. We can't get away from that dichotomy. <clears throat> he is both. And there's something from verses like that that kind of impressed upon me that the, the natural inclination the Israelites had to clinging to the law, because that's what they had. <clears throat> and as part of the law, there were given to them certain rituals, certain sacrifices, and they all had a purpose. And the purpose of those sacrifices was atonement. That's a, another fancy word that it means covering over as a, as a way of reconciliation, of, um, of coming back together. You can read it as literally at one meant, the sense of being together. It's what God wanted from his people and with his people. It's what his people wanted from and with God. But there was a problem. That God's people, well, they were people. <laughs> they were dirty. And therefore, they couldn't be around God because God is holy and man is not. And to be in God's presence would destroy a man. Unfortunately, God made a way. He told them to build a tabernacle, a place for him to dwell amongst them so they could still be near his presence and he could dwell among them, but that they would also be kind of shielded from his glory, which would inhabit a particular part of that tabernacle, that tent, so they wouldn't have to be right up against him because they wouldn't be able to stand it. And he also gave them instructions for a, a series of sacrifices and, and offerings, and that's where we find ourselves in Leviticus, which is a great book. It's all about the sacrifices and how to do them and what they're for and, and so on. And it might sound boring, but it's a very interesting book, partly because it has this really, really interesting mirrored literary structure. The chapters comment on each other, but that's, that's for me to nerd out about. The content of it is really fascinating. There are all these different kinds of offerings, and there's how they're supposed to be killed, and, and what parts of them get put where, and do they get burned, or do they get eaten, or do they get burned outside of the trash pile, and, and so on. <clears throat> and some of these were for individuals, and some of these were for priests, and some of these were for all the people, and some of them were daily things, and some of them were as needed, and some of them were annual, and, and all this. And, and all of that, all that, all those sacrifices, the point of them was so that despite Israel's sin and dirtiness, they could still maintain near God's presence because of those sacrifices. God inhabited the inner place of that tent. It says the Holy of Holies, that his glory rested there. And so people were able and willing to sacrifice as a way of covering over their sins in order to maintain a closeness of relationship with God, though still divided. In the middle of the book about all these sacrifices and, and how to do them, there's a particular description of one special sacrifice, or rather the whole, the whole day that's about that sacrifice. Your calendar on your iPhone will show it in uh, September, October as Yom Kippur, um, the holiest day on the Jewish calendar, the Sabbath of Sabbaths. It's called the Day of Atonement. And I would encourage you to read Leviticus 16 and its description of how that is to play out. On the Day of Atonement, the priest would first put on his holy garments, his linen pants and sash and turban. I have my linen on today, so I'm ready. Um, he would first sacrifice a bull as atonement for himself so that he could then go in to the Holy of Holies with blood. And he would put that blood, he would sprinkle it on the, the Ark of the Covenant. And without getting into too specific of a history, the Ark of the Covenant was a... Essentially, it was a gold box that, that held the tablets that the law was written on. And so inside the box was the law, 
which humans had never been able to keep and were constantly breaking and failing. And on the lid of the box of the ark, there were two cherubim made of gold. And it was there that, that God said in Exodus 25 um, that he would speak to his people or to Moses, to his people. Verse 22 of Exodus 25 says, And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Leviticus 16 verse 2 is where we see the instructions for the Day of Atonement, and it says there that the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. So you have the Ark of the Covenant between God and his people, which, which holds the law, inscribed by God, but unable to be kept by man. Even touching the Ark, this was a holy thing too, even touching it would, would kill a man. We see that in 2 Samuel 6, which is weirdly one of my favorite Bible stories, um, the story of, of Uzzah. He tried to catch it as he was falling off the ox cart. <clears throat> it illustrates the holiness of God. And above that ark, above that, that box, you have, you have the cloud, the, the Shekinah glory of God, the, the presence of the Lord. And that too would render a man dead if he were to come in unclean or at the wrong time. That's why uh, God tells Moses, hey, let Aaron know he can't just wander in here whenever he wants. He can't just come into the holy place <clears throat> lest he die. So on the Day of Atonement, this was the day they could do that, or he could do that, I should say, the high priest. What the priest had to do in Leviticus 16 after several other preparations is this in verse 14. It says, He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then... He shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement of the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. A lot of processes you got to tell him for the priest himself and for the tabernacle itself <clears throat> and then people. And then after you do all that, you're able to come in and, and be in the holy place. And so the high priest takes the blood of an innocent animal and he puts it on top of the ark, but underneath the cloud of God's glory. Okay, he puts that innocent blood in between the law which mankind has failed again and again to uphold, between that and God. That blood comes in between. And so man's inability to, to uphold and abide by the law of God is covered. And God sees that sacrifice, that blood, between man's broken covenant and God's perfect holiness. He covers the broken failures of man in atonement. But that's also all it was, a covering. That word for atonement that's used in Hebrew comes from the root word for covering something up, for overlaying something. Not taking it away, but covering it. Because sin defiles things. It makes them unclean, not just distasteful, but dirty. 
<clears throat> they need to be cleansed and not just covered over. Imagine washing your dishes like that. You have spaghetti one night. Instead of cleansing your dish, you just cover over it. Maybe you, I don't know, you put some flour on it so it looks white and clean, right? Nice and neat. And then the next day you have something else and you cover over it again. Well, it's not clean. <clears throat> or have you ever tried to paint over nicotine stains in a house? My brother bought a house a few years ago that the previous owner was a heavy smoker. And no matter how many coats of paint he put on the walls, eventually that, that nicotine would seep through these ugly, dark, brown, splotchy things. No matter how many layers you put over it to try and cover it up, the sin is still there. And it's just working its way forward. Now, how much worse is the stain of sin than nicotine? And so you have this annual covering up of the sins of man. You have blood poured out in the same place year after year after year. This beautiful golden ark, which was a, a marvel to behold, an incredible thing. It held the sacred law and words of God inscribed by his finger, overlaid in gold, and it's becoming continually blackened with old, crusty blood. Year after year, as the high priest comes in and spills a little bit more, just to add a fresh covering over of man's inability to be sinless. It's just a covering. Hebrews chapter 10 says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 tells us that the flesh, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And it's the blood that makes atonement for the soul. The blood is life. But the blood could only cover. It couldn't take him away. The blood of animals was insufficient for the sins of man. Now fortunately, we do have that great high priest whose blood is sufficient. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John wrote that about Jesus. In him was life. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It was a different kind of blood in his veins. <clears throat> not an animal's blood, not the blood of a sinful man, but the blood of the one and the only perfect, holy, divine, sinless, righteous Savior. The blood of life. The blood of Jesus is different. John told us in chapter 1 that it cleanses us of all unrighteousness. It doesn't cover up our unrighteousness. It cleanses us from it. Jesus said that no one comes to the Father but through me. Not by adorning himself with some special linen garments once a year and sacrificing a bowl and bringing in some incense and, and flicking some blood on the ark just to be kind of near God's presence that's still masked in a cloud to keep him from just dying on the spot. But Jesus says to the Father, 
through his blood. Hebrews 10 continues. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. Previously saying sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who were being sanctified. He did this with one sacrifice. I was talking with a friend about this a couple days ago, and he said that the priests of the Old Testament would put modern-day butchers to shame, partly because of just how many animals they had to slaughter, but also because of the precision they had to do it with, because the law is clear that you're supposed to take certain parts of the animal, the fat, or part of the liver, or the kidneys, and put them in certain places. You had to be precise about this. It wasn't just a chop their head off and you know throw them up on a heap. God had required precision with that. It was also just the sheer magnitude of the number of sacrifices they made because they made them daily, they made them annually, and they made them for all kinds of people, right? Coming in, bringing, they would bring goats, sheep, doves. There's a whole list of things and sacrifices. They were, they were surrounded by carcasses all the time. Being an Old Testament priest would have been exhausting. And all of it didn't do the job. You know, here we have Jesus Christ who makes one sacrifice. That is sufficient. That doesn't picture for you the, the difference between man's capability and God's. <clears throat> I don't have much better illustration. And what does he do with our sin with that sacrifice? Does he cover it up? Sprinkle some blood over the top? Paul writes in Colossians 2 that Jesus has wiped out the handwriting of requirements, the debt against us, by nailing it to the cross. Not papered over it, but wiped it out. Those sins are taken away. They are got rid of. <clears throat> that is good news. And there's, there's more to the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 because there's a, there's a second goat that's chosen for that day. The first one, is sacrificed as a sin offering, and its blood is put on the Ark of the Covenant, as was mentioned earlier. But the other one has a different role. Its sacrifice is, is something else. And it's only after all of this effort in the tent, the sacrifice of the bull for the priest, and, and, and the goat, and the sprinkling of blood, and, and putting the blood in numerous places in the temple, and, and atoning for himself and his household, and all of Israel. It's only then, after all of that effort, that the priest would take the other goat, and lay his hands on it, and confess all the sins of Israel. It's Leviticus 16, 20 through 22. And I think about it as somebody who has, on occasion, tried to remember and list all of my sins, how long that would have taken. 
You're talking about the sins of a nation. It's only after everything that man could do to go through all that effort of cleansing himself and the tabernacle and the people and all that stuff, and it's still being insufficient, that the sins are then poured out on an innocent who takes the blame for all of it. And that goat was then sent out as a, as a picture of those sins being taken away. <clears throat> and there's a, there's a picture of, of both of these goats in Christ. But more importantly, there's a picture of Christ in both of those goats. <clears throat> In the, in the pouring out of his innocent blood and his death and also in the taking on of the burden of all of the sins and carrying them away. And there's a picture of Christ and all the sacrifices that are prescribed there in, in Leviticus and all those offerings that were prescribed, all of it, all of it points to Jesus as the one who was righteous, who could make one final sacrifice. In Leviticus, the priest made atonement for the people, but it was, it was never sufficient, not even for the priest alone. You hear you know, stories about how in the, in the temple period they would tie a rope to the, the ankle of that man so that in case he wasn't quite atoned for enough, they could drag his dead body out of the Holy of Holies. <laughs> Jesus makes atonement for us, and it is sufficient. We don't have to worry about the rope around our ankle. <clears throat> and it's sufficient for any and for all. And that's the last part of our verse this morning, at the end of verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. I had someone ask me while I was preparing this this past week what I thought about limited atonement versus unlimited atonement and five-point Calvinism versus Wesleyanism. And what I think about that is it's an interesting topic to discuss. And I'd be happy to sit down and go over notes and, and verses with you individually, that'd be awesome. So just let me know if you want to do that. I certainly have my stance on it. But what I said was, I just want to teach what the Bible says and not what it doesn't. And, and what it doesn't tell us is how to determine whether or not somebody is earmarked to eventually be one of God's elect, even before they're a believer. And without that knowledge, we have no reason to think that anybody might not be one of God's chosen people. And so practically, whether you're arguing for limited or unlimited atonement, it effectively shouldn't make any difference in your day-to-day -day life and your evangelism, your sharing of the gospel. You don't have the, the ability to know who his people are going to be. <clears throat> so our responsibility is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth regardless. It's our responsibility to share it, this good news, centered around 1 John 2, 2, to share it without knowing what God has done or is doing or will do in somebody's life. How many of us could say that you could tell before we were saved that we were going to be saved? <clears throat> Thank God they didn't stop the word from coming to us, huh? <clears throat> the Holy Spirit's work is not under our supervision. <laughs> now, I, there's a whole lot more to say about that, um, but I think we're probably not going to spend another week looking at this one verse. We could. <clears throat> but to me, it's clear that John is writing to specific people here. This letter is addressed possibly to the church at Ephesus where John administered. It's a Jewish audience. More importantly, it's addressing what the recipients are going through. They have false prophets and teachers coming in and trying to, to sway them away from the true Jesus, 
trying to tell them that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. He was just sort of a, a projection, uh, an ethereal spirit, which would mean that his death was not a truly fulfilling sacrifice or propitiation, or that maybe Jesus wasn't really God while he was man. He had to go back to be God somewhere else, and then he could come back and be man. He could switch between the two, in which case that his death wasn't a fully holy, righteous death. Or that maybe people weren't saved by faith alone in Christ alone. This is the stuff that John is dealing with, that the church he's writing to is dealing with. These people are scared, and they're confused, and they're worried. And John throughout, this is why he keeps hammering home as the apostle of truth, he reminds them of the certainty of Jesus. That Jesus is sufficient for their salvation. And not just for theirs, but for the whole world. So that they would be reminded and strengthened not to cower in fear from these bombastic false teachers, but so that they could boldly know they could take that word out into the world. That wherever they went, they could share that. <clears throat> Knowing that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient for whoever believed in him. That the truth of who they are and of who others could be by his blood could be shared. <clears throat> Let's end with some words from Isaiah 53. That seems appropriate. As we think about the sacrifice Jesus made that makes all this possible. Isaiah 53 verse 3 says, He is despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here is the perfect sacrifice, the, the unblemished, spotless lamb beaten to a pulp. Jesus, before he was even put up on the cross, was beaten. He was spat on. He was mocked. He had a crown of thorns digging into his skull. He was whipped, he was flayed open, and he was stripped bare. The ugliest sacrifice you could imagine. You would never take an animal like that into the temple, ever. But as God had been indicating all along, it was not just the outward appearance of the sacrifice that needed to be spotless in order to finally and fully propitiate God. It was his righteousness that made him worthy to be that sacrifice. The same righteousness that qualifies him to be our savior and our advocate. And for him to say that these are mine. So why go through all that? Why propitiate God for us? In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul is writing to a Corinthian church that is really struggling with apostasy and with heresy and false teaching and he reminds them that when he shared the gospel with them, what he did in effect was to betroth them to one husband, to present them as a pure virgin to Christ. In Ephesians 5, verse 25, says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, 
that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. And we cannot accomplish that on our own. Christ did these things to sanctify us, to cleanse us, so that we could be presented to him a glorious church. Not by our doing, or by any righteousness we might have of our own or by the law, but by his righteousness. He is preparing for himself a bride. And he will make it perfect by his blood. Our righteousness can't accomplish that, church. Only his can. So let's lean into his righteousness this week and always. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your righteousness and your perfection. Thank you for the mercy you have displayed in overcoming what we couldn't. And for not just hiding our sins, but for taking them away by the blood of your precious son. Lord, and we long to be that bride perfected and made clean for you, Lord. And we could worship you forever. We thank you to have that to look forward to, God. Can't thank you enough. We love you, Lord. Amen.